Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial lawyers. I am Renee Rothage. Jeffrey Rosen is an American academic and commentator on legal and constitutional issues. He has been called the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. Mr. Rosen is the author of six books, including most recently, Conversations with RBG, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Life, Love, Liberty, and Law. His other books include biographies of William Howard Taft and Louis Brandeis. Since 2013, he has served as president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. He hosts the center's We the People podcast, which brings together liberal and conservative voices for constitutional debate. And he teaches Constitution 101, classes for learners of all ages. Mr. Rosen is also a professor at George Washington University Law School and a contributing editor of The Atlantic. He was previously the legal affairs editor of The New Republic and a staff writer for The New Yorker. Mr. Rosen is a graduate of Harvard University, Oxford University, where he was a Marshall Scholar, and Yale Law School. It is my honor to welcome Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia to our show today. Mr. Rosen, you have been called the most widely read and influential legal commentator in the nation, but I would update that description by calling you the nation's most recognized and followed constitutional influencer. And I believe my our listeners will agree once they hear about your incredible career. Well, thank you so much. That was actually my mother who said the thing about the most influential legal commentator. But I have, I have the incredible privilege right now of of working at the National Constitution Center. And it's such an honor and it's so meaningful to be able to convene all of these great diverse voices to explore areas of agreement and disagreement about the Constitution. I've got the best job in the world. And as we say at the NCC, it's constitutional heaven. I love that. Well, if, if any of our listeners haven't been to the National Constitutional Center, can you tell us what is it and why should they visit? I'll start with our mission statement, which I always recite at the beginning of our programs and podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. And that important mission, which comes from the Bicentennial Heritage Act when Congress created the NCC, is so significant and we take it really seriously. The NCC is a temple to the Constitution on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, across from Independence Hall, where the Declaration and the Constitution were drafted. And in the great atrium overlooking Independence Hall, we have the words of the First Amendment, 50 feet high and 70 tons of marble. Imagine being in that incredible space and being inspired to talk about the Constitution. At the museum, there's theater, there are exhibits, There are activities for kids. There's a hall of the founders with life-size statues of the founders. It's just the most inspiring place to visit if you want to think about the Constitution in Philly. But the the NCC is much more than a museum. It's America's leading nonpartisan education center about the Constitution. 
And we have an incredible online interactive constitution which hosts all of our content. It's gotten more than 70 million hits since we launched in 2015. And it brings together liberal and conservative thinkers, scholars, teachers, and all sorts of voices to explore areas of agreement and disagreement about every clause of the constitution. So you can click on the First Amendment and see leading scholars debating its meaning. Then you can explore early drafts, our links to our podcast, the ones I host every week that have liberal and conservative voices debating constitutional issues in the news. And then there are these great Constitution 101 videos for high school students, for learners of all ages, and for teachers that we're taking across America. So it's just an amazing place, and it's all Constitution all the time. Well, and I don't know if, if our listeners know this, but you mentioned the interactive constitution. Now that that is an app. I actually have the constitutional app on my phone, and it's to me, I found it to be such a an incredible tool to to provide access to anyone and everyone just right there on their phone. So tell me about how how that came to be. What how is it that you decided to do this and you mentioned that you've had 70 million viewers, but have there been other influences or other things that you've seen that the interactive constitution have helped contributed to the dialogue? We created it in 2015 on the thought that the best way to take our mission seriously would be to persuade America's leading liberal and conservative scholars to talk about the constitution and to debate each other. And we convinced the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, the leading liberal and conservative lawyers groups, to nominate scholars for each of the 80 clauses of the Constitution. So imagine 160 scholars. These are incredible people like Justice Amy Coney Barrett when she was a law professor in conversation with Neil Katyal, my, my brother-in-law, on the habeas corpus clause, or Michael McConnell and Marcy Hamilton on the First Amendment. It just it blows your mind how exciting it is in its depth and rigor, and also how significant the areas of agreement as well as disagreement are. The leading hits to the interactive constitution are news driven. So when the second amendment is in the news, people Google the second amendment, the interactive constitution comes up top and that's where they see the content. So that's among the um, great measures of its influence. During the election, during the 2020 election, we were getting up to 600,000 visits a day, which is really a lot of hits by, by the, any standards. Uh, so it's, it's quite news driven. But the, the other side of its sign of its influence is the depth of the adoption of our teaching content in classrooms. And we have a great teacher advisory network that's taking it to high school students across the country. And we have a great new partnership with Khan Academy. They're doing their first civics course with us. And we're going to take Constitution 101 into the 800,000 classrooms that Khan reaches, and that's just a, a game changer for civics, and how exciting to be able to bring this nonpartisan content free to so many kids across America. That's an, that's an incredible accomplishment, and it, it leads to one of my next questions was, you know, how long have you been president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and are, are there any things that you're particularly proud of that you feel you've accomplished during that time? I've uh, been there since 2013, 10 years, uh, hard to believe. And the, the greatest accomplishment is certainly that 
but the interactive constitution and all the associated content on it, we, we really did build it all from scratch. So both the, the scholars um, debating each other, the We the People podcast series, which we started up, the, the Constitution 101 classes, the Founders Library of primary documents selected by liberal and conservative scholars, the uh, drafting table, that amazing tool. It's so cool to see the, the, the uh, early drafts of all these constitutional provisions. All, all the web content is just the, the most meaningful thing I've ever been associated with. And I'm so proud to be part of the team that, uh, that, that made it possible. And, and then there's all the wonderful work at the Constitution Center. And we've built a series of permanent exhibits in the past 10 years on constitutional themes, a, a, a inspiring exhibit on the constitutional legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction with John Brown's Pike and Frederick Douglass's Inkwell and early drafts of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. We just opened last week a new First Amendment gallery with Mary Beth Tinker's armband. Remember the Tinker case where the young Mary Beth Tinker protested the Vietnam War? She lent us her armband along with Louis Brandeis's draft opinion in Whitney with his handwritten notes. That's just an inspiring artifact. And those galleries are the first part of a, a multi-year planned renovation of our core galleries so that we'll bring this constitutional content to the core of the NCC. It's, it's just been a, a, a superb journey. And as I say, I'm so proud to be part of the team that's made it possible. Well, it sounds like even if you have visited the Constitution Center, which I have, it sounds like there's more to see and we need to go back. So that's the message to our listeners, right? Absolutely. It's, it never stops inspiring. Whenever you're in Philly or make a special trip to Philly, as, as many Constitution lovers do, just to, to see the NCC. And of course, bring your kids because our most important goal is to inspire the next generation of citizens. Well, there's been there's real debate over provisions in the U.S. Constitution, and your work is a testament to that which we can see in the interactive constitutional website and everywhere else. So this is my question for you. Is this debate that we see constantly over what the constitution means, proof that the founders didn't draft it clearly enough or there, it was defective in some way? Or do you have another explanation for all the discourse that occurs around this document? The constitutional debate is the essence of America. This is hardwired into the system. J James Madison believes that civil dialogue about the meaning of constitutional principles is necessary for the future of the republic. But we have to be civic friends and listen respectfully to people of different points of view so that we can thoughtfully resolve our disagreements by reason rather than passion. The entire document is founded on an enlightenment faith that it's possible to create governments as Hamilton says in Federalist One, based on reason and conviction and not force or violence. Is the debate itself a, a, a feature of the system or a, a defect? Well, debate over the meaning of how to interpret the Constitution arose from, from day one. And broadly, the great debate between Hamilton and Jefferson about how to interpret the Constitution has defined all of our constitutional and political battles since the founding. Hamilton, the defender of national power, of broad ability to regulate the economy and protect national security, and of loose construction so that you could imply all powers that were important to carry out the enumerated powers. And Jefferson, 
the partisan of states' rights rather than national power, of liberty versus security, and of strict construction versus loose construction. That debate came to a head in the debate about the constitutionality of the National Bank, and it was resurrected during the Civil War over whether or not the South had the power to secede, during the New Deal about the scope of the New Deal regulatory state. And all of our great battles today are between originalists and living constitutionalists are a resurrection of that battle. Broadly, President Ronald Reagan in, in 1980 pledged to appoint originalist justices who would reverse what he argued were the excesses of the New Deal administrative state and, and resurrect a more Jeffersonian strict constructionism to repudiate the, the, the Hamiltonianism of the, of the New Deal court. And recently he, he got his majority and, and we're seeing those debates played out on the court today. So, so far from being a, a sign of the dysfunction of the system, they're very much baked into it from the beginning. Oh, that's a great answer. So this is all, we're just living all part of the plan. This is what was supposed to happen. And we remain relevant today. I guess it does, it does keep the constitution relevant in the sense that there's always debate surrounding it and you can interpret it from whatever perspective. Uh, This has been going on from the beginning. Now that that's not to say that the survival of the Republic is assured or that we can just go on autopilot and uh, sit back and, and watch the debate. The, the founders are unsure from the very beginning about whether or not the Republic will survive. And in particular, they fear demagogues uh, like those in Massachusetts during Shea's rebellion, the, the, the debtors who mobbed federal courthouses because they didn't want to pay their debt. Or there are these amazing quotations from both Hamilton and Jefferson from different perspectives after the Constitution is drafted about how an unscrupulous president could using demagogic arts, try to entrench himself in office. So Hamilton famously says that we could imagine an unscrupulous demagogue who would try to reap the whirlwind by uh, flattering the people. And he says for that reason, his, his preferred solution is a president elected for life because a president for life won't have an incentive to try to um, overturn elections or install himself beyond his his term. Jefferson reaches the opposite conclusion. I just found the other day this amazing quotation from Jefferson to Madison, where he says, we could ima- imagine an unscrupulous demagogic president who loses a second or third term of election by a few votes and refuses to leave office and persuades the states who have voted for him to support his plan to subvert the presidency. It's just amazing. But Jefferson reaches the opposite conclusion from Hamilton. He wants a annual elections generally, and for the case of the presidency, term limits after four years. You're only eligible for one four-year term, and then you can't be a demagogue because there's no opportunity to keep running and to try to subvert election results. So they're they're very much divided about how strong the executive should be and, and how responsive it should be to democracy, but united in the fear that the whole thing could collapse if the people don't vote thoughtfully and, and, and also work to protect their liberty. And that's why there's grave concern at the end of most of the founder's life about whether or not the people will find the, the civic virtue to make wise choices and to choose good representatives. And in different ways, Hamilton, Jefferson, Washington, and Adams are pretty despairing at the end of their lives about whether or not the Republic will survive and whether or not the people will find that 
virtue, self-restraint, calm self-mastery, willingness to be governed by reason rather than passion, willing to educate themselves about the complicated issues at stake in the Republic so that they can make wise choices. Only Madison is a little more optimistic. He expects less of democracy, and he thinks as long as people can keep talking to each other, then virtue may survive. But Madison has special faith in the media, and he imagines this great new technology, the, the printing press, that will allow the cool voice of reason to spread throughout the land through complicated essays like the Federalist Papers, which will be printed in the newspapers, and other articles written by a class of enlightened journalists he calls the literati, a kind of Atlantic magazine you know, journalists who are supposed to slowly educate the people. It, it, it sounds quaint to, to say it now. Imagine a, a mass public reading the Federalist Papers and the proliferation of government by tweet and of an enraged to engage business model on social media very much calls into questions Madison's optimism. Oh, what a fascinating view of the past and our founders, uh, op optimism or lack thereof. Now, trial lawyers like to ask experts hypothetical questions, so I couldn't help myself here. And, and my hypothetical question is about Hamilton versus Jefferson, because although they came in our governance very differently in the 1700s, if they were alive today and they could view our 250-year history, do you think they would come to some agreement about the best type of government for the United States? So in other words, would Jefferson become more Hamiltonian or would Hamilton become more Jeffersonian? This is such a great question, and this is actually the, the, the new book that I'm writing on is about precisely this topic, Hamilton versus Jefferson, the battle for the soul of America, how their debates have defined all of our constitutional clashes since the founding. So they agreed on the most important uh, principles, which were the American idea as embodied in the Declaration and the Constitution. In the Declaration, created equal natural rights and government by consent, and in the Constitution, separation of powers, federalism, and rule by we the people, the rule of law. They're, they're, they're committed to that. What, what they disagree about is the scope of federal power and how strictly or narrowly it should be interpreted, both by the different branches of government and also by the courts. So would they come around? Well, famously, Jefferson, uh, after having denounced federal power, becomes president and rules more like a Hamiltonian. Uh, he uh, oversees the Louisiana Purchase, which even though he thinks it violates a strict construction of the Constitution, he has an embargo and he's much more robust and moderate in his use of federal power than he appeared to be as a theorist. And as well, Hamilton was no fan of unlimited federal power. He believed that there was a connection between increasing commerce and increasing liberty, but he still thought that independent judges should enforce limits. So would, would he have been a, a, a fan of the post-New Deal administrative state? Well, Franklin Roosevelt thought so. And famously, this was the great switch in American history. During the New Deal, Democrats came to use Hamiltonian means for Jeffersonian ends. In other words, they supported a broad and vigorous federal government in order to achieve the Jeffersonian ends of economic equality and 
personal liberty. Would Hamilton have gone along? Who knows? We do know, of course, Hamilton is the great prophet of, of, of racial equality, of immigration, and of the, the, the meritocracy. He's, he's against inherited privilege of any kind. He was very much more enlightened about race than Jefferson was, as well as about religious discrimination. So the pluralism of America is something where Hamilton has, has been much more vindicated than Jefferson. You see already, I, I'm working my way around the question of, of whether they would uh, converge or compromise. But one thing that I'm confident of, and it was uh, what I mentioned earlier, they would both be adamantly opposed to demagogues and believe it urgently important to maintain the separation of powers, the rule of law, executives accountable to the, to the people through elections. In each era of American history, there's been a kind of demagogue who has questioned the Hamiltonian and Jefferson consensus. During their era, it was Aaron Burr, who both of them viewed as a, a dangerous traitor to the Republic, although that their views may have opened a question by Burr's actual conduct. Jefferson tried him for treason, and he was only narrowly acquitted by Chief Justice Marshall. And during the Civil War, it was the Southern secessionists who questioned the meaning of the Declaration and the Constitution and, and said that Jefferson was wrong to insist on the natural rights of all. During the New Deal, it was, it was Huey Long and, and other populists who had subverted constitutional limits in their states. And because the Constitutional Center is nonpartisan, I won't fill in what our current challenges are, but I'll, I'll leave it to your listeners to evaluate our current political landscape and imagine what the framers would have thought about our leaders today. Well, it sounds like your book will be an excellent place to find out uh, more precisely what the answer to my hypothetical question is. So we anxiously await its publication. Thank you. I look forward to answering that. Are there any fun or little known facts about the U.S. Constitution that you have learned since becoming president and CEO of the National Constitution Center? There are so many. And one that comes to mind, because people always comment on it when they visit the NCC in person, is that the First Amendment isn't the first because it was considered the most important. It's first because it was the first that happened to be ratified. We have at the center one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights that was sent out to the states. And the original First Amendment wasn't our first. It was the one that said that there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, there'd be about 6,000 people in Congress today. The original Second Amendment was the one that said that Congress can't raise its salary without an intervening election. That was the one that eventually was ratified years later as the 27th Amendment. So our first was their third, and it just happened to get ratified first. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, you've probably met thousands of visitors in your tenure at the NCC. Have there been any that were particularly memorable? Well, of course, you know, we're honored to host dignitaries, and it's always exciting when Supreme Court justices come, and our, our current chairs are Justices Gorsuch and Breyer, but other members of the court, I think almost all of them, have come for tours at times, and I, I won't say which one it was, but one came recently and saw the Bill of Rights and said, I didn't know that the First Amendment wasn't first. I thought we always said it was first because it was most important. So like like me, that justice was, was uh, surprised by that great fun fact. Oh, that's terrific. 
Well, the American College of Trial Lawyers has announced this year a partnership with the NCC called the Peer-to-Peer Scholar Exchange Program, and it's a way for ACTL fellows to get involved with civics education. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about us and maybe give a plug for why our listeners should get involved. So excited, dear listeners, for you to get involved with the NCC. Uh, There are great opportunities, especially teaching the Constitution, and it would be wonderful if you would host some of our online Zoom classes, in particular the classroom exchanges that unite classrooms from across the country. Imagine how meaningful it is to teach kids in Texas and kids in California and moderate a discussion about the Constitution among them. It's a phenomenal way of bringing diverse classrooms together and also teaching the Constitution. We all learned it in law school. Now you have a chance to inspire the next generation to do it. You can teach Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, you know, Crim Pro 101, which is always so satisfying, or the basics of con law. But people have found it very fulfilling. Judges are signing up to do it and and lawyers as well. And I hope you'll consider joining us because it's just such a great thing to do. Wonderful. I'm sure that many of us will be joining you. So I have to just get a turn a little personal here. And I just, I had to, when you were a kid, did you want to grow up and run a constitution center? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> Who knew what a constitution center was? And then the NCC didn't exist. I did not know what I want, wanted to be when I grew up. I, I loved reading and learning. I loved English and history. And it was so exciting when I remember going to the Library of Congress for the first time when I was really young with my mom and standing in the Thomas Jefferson building and being so full of wonder at the thought that all of the books in the world were in one place. And I went to college and majored in English and government, uh, literature and and, uh, political science, which I loved. And I I just didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I had this, I I, I have to, it sounds weird, but I have to call it a vision in college. But I, I had this, I was in the college library and I realized that my mission in life was to bring together literature and politics, English and government, and liberals and conservatives. That's what's, that was what I was kind of given, and I didn't know how I was going to do that. So I went to law school because I didn't know what else to do, and I loved to read and write and study history and English. And in law school, I decided to be a journalist, and my mom almost jumped off a building. You went to Yale Law School and you're not going to be a lawyer? I know. It was, a, it was an unusual choice. But I just felt like I wouldn't be a I, I wouldn't I wouldn't enjoy it that it wasn't the the mission and I had worked during a summer in law school for the New Republic magazine and writing about the Supreme Court nomination of William Brennan actually who just resigned was the most exciting thing that I had ever experienced writing about the court and the law as a journalist in this wonderful small magazine was was the greatest thrill. So that was why I decided to be a journalist. And that was how I brought together politics and writing. And I was extraordinarily happy as a journalist. And I just, I, I, I should say, I got a, one of the great breaks of my life when after I graduated 
the, lead, the, the editor of The New Republic, Andrew Sullivan, asked me to come back to TNR, where I'd been an intern for the summer, and be their legal affairs editor. He said, Alexander Bickle did this, and Felix Frankfurter, and we want you to resurrect this tradition of writing about the law from a, you know, for a general audience. It was just an extraordinary stroke of luck. I was in my late 20s, and The New Republic was a big deal in an age without the internet and, and there weren't a lot of people writing about the law. So it, I really owe so much of what followed to, to Andrew Sullivan and his confidence and that amazing break of being in the right place at the right time. Well, well I would imagine as, as a trial lawyer, often we're taking complicated topics and we're bringing them to non-lawyers who are just, just happen to draw this, the straw that landed them in the jury box and you and you struggle to figure out how to make things relevant and how to convey them in a way that's meaningful, impactful, and educational. And so I wonder in those early days when you decided this was your path and you were going to bring law to the, a general audience, did you struggle? Did you go through, was there a learning curve for you? And could you describe that? You're so right to compare what trial lawyers do to what journalists, or at least legal journalists do, it's distilling the essence of the argument in a way that people can understand to make it relevant through stories and to capture it at a level of abstraction, which is exactly accurate, but also accessible. How did I do it? I don't know. I was full of the wild overconfidence of youth. I was just so swaggering and self-confident. And I wrote these oracular pieces that sounded like they were you know, written by a seven-year-old guy. And I, I thought I knew everything back then as, as, as I did in my 20s. And I came to realize over time that I knew nothing and that far from being confident in my opinions, nowadays I've, I've lost interest in my own opinions and I'm, I'm, not, I'm no, no longer devoted to telling the Supreme Court why I'm right and they're wrong. But it was it was a great thing to be doing when when I was young and I just came out of the gates guns blazing. Well, uh, tell us about some of your early work or I guess as a journalist, did you have any articles that or a series of articles that were sort of your favorite where you felt that you did your your best work? Well, during my first year at the New Republic, I wrote a series of profiles of the justices and they ran them as cover stories and and people weren't really doing this kind of writing about the justices in those days writing both about their personalities and about their jurisprudence i had had i i wrote about justice uh, scalia and justice byron white when he retired and there were a bunch of retirements during the early years justice blackman and wrote these kind of jurisprudential personality profiles again explaining why why the justices were wrong Definitely, they, they made a splash. It's very exciting to do. And then after a year or two at TNR, Justice, it was Justice White retired, and it came time to replace him. And I, again, with the wild overconfidence of youth, made this list ranking who President Clinton, in my view, should appoint. At the, at the top of my list was, uh, was Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who at the time, and amazingly, was being questioned by some liberal groups for being insufficiently liberal because she had criticized Roe v. Wade for, for being too sweeping, although she agreed with the result. 
So I had gotten to know uh, Judge Ginsburg as a law clerk on the DC circuit. I, I met her. She walked into the elevator that I was in as she was coming down from a exercise class called Jazzercise. She was just silent as she tended to be when she met someone for the first time. And to break the ice in this elevator, I couldn't think of anything to say. So I blurted out, what operas have you seen recently? And of course, that turned out to be exactly the right question to ask. I didn't even know she was an opera fan, but I am. So I, I kind of nervously asked. And that just began a friendship and a conversation about opera that began in that elevator and continued through her time on the court. But be, because I'd gotten to know her on the lower court, I was able to sing her praises along with many other unsought testimonials that she received. And she credited that piece in helping bring her over the edge with the White House and the rest is history. So that, that was, it was just an example again of, it was, there was, before the internet, there were a lot fewer voices even writing about the law. So you could have a kid writing a piece for the New Republic and have it be bigger deal than any piece would be now. And it was another lucky break. And what a thrill to be in the middle of, of Judge Ginsburg's nomination. So that might be the best thing you ever wrote was the, the correspondence to Clinton telling him to appoint her. I mean, if we're talking about your best piece, that obviously had, was good. There's no, there's no question about it. I, I was just telling the truth, but it was absolutely had better effect than any other piece I've ever written. No, no question about it. Well, nicely done. Well, were there any cases? So you've talked about justices. Did you cover cases at all? Were there cases that were of interest to you that you covered? Yes, I, I wrote about the oral arguments. And again, it, it's it's important to remember there, there's no, not only is there no internet, but the oral arguments aren't, the transcripts don't come out immediately. They're not live streamed. So to write about the oral arguments, you actually generally have to go to the court. And writing about the oral arguments from a jurisprudential perspective, which now every blogger does, was a new thing. So I, you know, it's, it's not a mass audience enterprise, but I wrote from the court from that perspective. But the pieces that on, on the cases that I remember are the ones that were reported. And some of those were really memorable. For example, when the VMI case was being decided, the Virginia Military Institute case challenging VMI's all-male admissions policy, I went out to VMI. I saw the will, which was the supposedly separate but equal military academy for women that Virginia tried to set up in order to avoid uh, liability, which was a kind of... Uh, unsuccessful attempt to set up a, a truly equal alternative to VMI based on collaborative rather than adversative terms. And, and then I, I saw at VMI the wonderful superintendent, Josiah Bunting, who viewed VMI not as a proto-West Point, but as a vision of Thomas Arnold's English boarding school where uh, men could explore their more sensitive sides by reading Roman history and English poetry. It was just a, a great you know, profile of, of VMI right before it was about to be ruled against. And Josiah Bunting looked over the fields of VMI gazing on the Panopticon, which is the central inspection tower in the middle of the field at VMI where guards behind Venetian blinds observe the rats, the, the, the cadets at all times, because they're in rooms without windows or doors pierced by light. And the guards can always see the cadets and the cadets can't see the guards. And it literally is Jeremy Bentham applied. Josiah Bunting is looking over this 
amazing scene and says, I said, how do you feel? You're about to lose the Supreme Court case. He said, I feel wistful. It's like the Adagietto section in Mahler's Fifth. There's a sense of all that we're about to lose. And then he quoted a beautiful phrase in Latin and said, we've built something precious and it's now all about to be destroyed. In fact, as Justice Ginsburg said, after she wrote, of course, the VMI opinion ruling against VMI, she said, boys will be boys, but they'll come to accept the need to have justice. And they did. And, and she was pleased that VMI did comply with the ruling. So, But it was, it was just really good to actually go on the ground and, and report. I, I'll, I, I, I'll, I'll stop except to say that reporting on the Amendment 2 case in Denver, where the, Denver had passed, Colorado passed a constitutional amendment that it tried to prohibit special treatment for gays and lesbians, but arguably allowed discrimination against them. That gave rise to an extraordinary trial and a memorable piece as well. Well, I was going to ask you if there were any constitutional cases that you had some personal involvement or connection with. Would that be the case that you covered closely and you had a connection to, or would there have been another? Well, that was, you know, the, the best example. Again, as a journalist, I wasn't involved in it substantively, although I knew many of the participants. But what was extraordinary about the Amendment 2 case is that the trial judge decided to hold evidentiary hearings about the central questions about whether or not gays and lesbians were entitled to strict scrutiny in particular, is there a history of discrimination? Is the characteristic immutable? And is the characteristic relevant to the ability to contribute to society? Those all come from the case law. So there was this satiricon of witnesses, that's the only word, of Greek, Greek and Roman historians and self-styled uh, gay conversion therapy peddlers and all sorts of pseudoscientists who sort of went on the stand to try to argue on either side of these cases. So there was this amazing moment when my friend Robbie George of Princeton was debating Martha Nussbaum of, of Chicago about the Greek, ancient Greek view of homosexuality. And another scholar accused Nussbaum of perjuring herself on the stand because she had translated Plato's word for homosexuality, tolmema, as deed of daring or adventure rather than abomination. So he said she'd be liable for perjury because she mistranslated the word for the, the Greek word for, for, for being gay. It, it was, to put it mildly, not the kind of question that was well suited to that sort of evidentiary trial. And in the end, the plaintiffs decided to bag the effort to get heightened scrutiny and to make the more the, the, the less fact and uh, dependent argument that singling out gays and lesbians and making it harder for them to seek protection, except at the statewide level, violated their rights to political participation. It was a kind of First Amendment argument. And the court didn't buy that, and the Supreme Court didn't buy that in the end either. It adopted a caste-based theory, a kind of heightened rational basis review with bite, saying that you couldn't make laws about gays and lesbians based on the view that they were inferior. Designed to degrade gays and lesbians because of moral disapproval, couldn't pass rational basis review, a much more straightforward approach than the early litigation, but it's just a sign. It's a, it's a good reminder of how doctrine doesn't evolve quickly. And the, and the plaintiffs were properly depending on existing case law, trying to make their case in the trial court, seeing 
it get made was just riveting. It gave me great respect for trial lawyers and, um, and seeing it get filtered up to the Supreme Court was interesting too. And that, that must have been quite poignant, especially when everything, you know, with all that's happened. I mean, as you reflect upon that history, that is, we've, we've certainly come a long, a long way. It's, it's really extraordinary to think how far we've come and how quickly things change, how, how quickly norms change and public opinion changes. The, the, the extraordinary, you know, remember, I'm, I'm, I began writing at TNR in, in, 90, in, in, in 92, and gay marriage would have been unthinkable then. And liberals, including President Obama, you know, decade, a, a decade later, still opposed it. And to see the, the shifts from Lawrence, well, from Bowers in, in 86 to, to Lawrence in Texas in, in 2003, and then, and then to Obergefell uh, 10 years later, just just mind-boggling and very inspiring. Well, that is, I, I, I think we agree on that. Although I think we have to say, and, and this is true, there's still more work to be done. And I'm glad you're on the front lines educating everyone so that hopefully that can work and proceed more quickly than it has in the past. Well, I want to shift gears and talk about your podcast, We the People, which is another forum in which you excel. And I was I, I was wondering how you came up with it. And then also, have there been any podcasts that are the most viewed or have, you know, had the most traction or? We came up with it in, in the most uh, straightforward way possible. Just the thought it would be good to convene liberals and conservatives every week to talk about the Constitution. And we started recording on landlines. It kind of sounded like it was recorded in a bathtub in the early, I don't know, 2014 or something like that, <laughs> people like that. But it was hit because no one else was doing it mindfully. And just week after week, bringing together a liberal and a conservative voice to debate constitutional issues, both before the court and throughout history, is what we do. And it's, it's just such a thrill to do it. And I learn so much and... The discussions are so civil, and often you find unexpected agreement, although agreement isn't necessarily the point. It's just respectful dialogue, but it's an extremely meaningful opportunity to, to learn and to share all that I've learned with the audience. Really memorable moments. Oh, my goodness. Discussion on Martin Luther King's birthday with... Bill Allen and Hassan Kwame Jeffries about King's legacy, strong liberal, strong conservative voices was wonderful. A podcast on Frederick Douglass's legacy with the great Douglass historian, David Blight and Lucas Morrell, the great Lincoln scholar, just was brought chills. Really viewed episodes. I just found out last week, I, I, we broke format recently, and I did a one-on-one -on -one interview with Judge Michael Ludick, my friend, our NCC board member, and the great prophet of constitutional faith in America, who helped persuade Mike Pence not to overturn the election. And that podcast, which we posted on YouTube, I, I think it was 70,000 hits or something like that. Way, way more than ordinary episodes. Now, it, it has to be said that was because Judge Ludig, he had just been on PBS talking to Judy Woodruff about his noble vision, and there was a lot of interest, and it was hot in the news. 
And that's, I think, why it got so many hits. Generally, we're constrained because we do insist on, and I, I thought that was a worthwhile experiment because he was talking about the history of de demagogues in America and about his own efforts to overturn the election. But generally, we stick to the liberal conservative format, only talking about constitutional and not political issues. And those have a more particular audience. Yeah. Well, it sounds like all of those episodes and shows should be, be on the list of viewing for our listeners. Please check them out, dear listeners. Uh, we the people. And, and it's a good way to educate yourself on the cases. I find that I can't really have a confident view on, on, on the cases until I've heard the arguments on both sides. We both have recaps of the oral arguments. This week, we're going to recap the Consumer Financial Protection Board arguments, which just got heard uh, today as we're recording. And they're complicated, and I, I'll look forward to hearing from the scholars on both sides, as well as the opinions after they come down. Well, th these cases are always harder than you imagine, and it's helpful to just take some time. You know, the, the episodes are an hour, but, but it's worthwhile just to slowly listen to the arguments on both sides and make up your own mind. Well, I'd like to turn now to your career as I, I guess as an author. Let's we've talked about journalism, we've talked about your student years, but as a lawyer and as a journalist, you've you've written about and probably interviewed more U.S. Supreme Court justices than than anyone in recent history. And I wondered if you had a favorite. Well, I am talking to you from my home office, and behind me is a portrait of Louis Brandeis, the, the Warhol print. And among the 20th century court, he is one of my favorites. I wrote a book about him, and he is so inspiring in his Jeffersonian opposition to the curse of bigness in business and government, and for writing, I think, the greatest free speech opinion of the 20th century, Whitney versus California which he read after rereading Jefferson's Virginia Bill on Religious Freedom, and also his Olmstead Fourth Amendment decision, which must be the greatest description of, of unreasonable searches and seizures in a technological age. And if his opposition to the curse of bigness and his prophecy of free speech and privacy weren't enough, of course, he also became the great Zionist who did more than anyone to persuade the American government to recognize the state of Israel. So so he's a hero, but I, 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 it won't be a surprise to say my other great 20th century hero is Justice Ginsburg. Well, I, ha I had the list of people that you've written about, you've interviewed. So it's Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Stevens, Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kennedy. And I was I was wondering if you could share with the audience anything that you learned about any one of them or all of them that you found surprising. Well, I was very impressed by Chief Justice Roberts's vision in our interview, which was in 2006 at the end of his first term as chief, about what kind of chief he wanted to be. And he said, this is a polarized time for the presidency and the Congress, and it's bad for the country to view the court in polarized terms, and he was going to make it his mission as chief to persuade his colleagues to converge around narrow, unanimous opinions, using as his model the greatest chief, John Marshall, in order to protect the bipartisan legitimacy 
of the court, which he thought was crucially important for the rule of law. And just to cut the story short, we all know what happened. I, he struggled nobly to do this for more than a decade. He had some success, and then he lost the votes, and and he no longer is able to pursue that vision. And I think that's too bad. And what, what's striking about the interview was was how incredibly candid he was about what he was trying to achieve, and how he did exactly what he said he was going to do, and succeeded until he lost the votes. Which one of them, do you know which ones was the funniest, the one that made you laugh the most? Well, a law review once did a study of the funniest justices. They counted up the number of laughs that each justice had received in the courtroom. I guess they asked some summer associates to do the tallying. And they found that Justice Scalia was the funniest justice, judged by the number of laughs. He would famously rib the lawyers. One guy was looking for an answer, and Justice Scalia said, when you find it, say bingo. It was that kind of thing. Justice Ginsburg regretfully reported that she was the least funny justice. But, but, but she loved Justice Scalia's sense of humor. And she said, sometimes he drives me crazy, but he makes me crack up. I mean, she, she would just laugh so hard at his wonderful jokes. I did have the opportunity to meet Justice Scalia over dinner once in, informally. And he was really funny and charming and just uh, we, we again, talked about opera, of course, but I screwed up my courage to ask him the law professor question that I always wanted to ask. I said, Justice Scalia, you're a great originalist, but it looks like the framers of the 14th Amendment didn't intend for it to cover school segregation because they said so. So isn't Brown inconsistent with original understanding? He paused for a second. I wasn't sure he was going to say. He throws back his head, laughs up Rory and, and says, you know what? No, no theory is perfect. Well, I'll preface this by saying I've had the pleasure of watching you teach and talk about the Constitution. You, you have just, it seems, a vast and almost unlimited knowledge of the Constitution. Is there any justice who knows more about the U.S. Constitution oh. than you? Oh, my goodness. I long ago, as I told you, abandoned any idea that I know anything about the Constitution or that my opinions matter. And it's, it's nothing to do with I, I, the only thing I've finally figured out in my career is how little I know and how important it is to listen to other people before I can make up any sort of judgment. You know, this is an extraordinarily learned and able court. And it's such a, they have vast knowledge in different ways. It's just such a pleasure to listen to their different approaches. We had an amazing debate at the National Constitution Center recently. We had our board meeting at the Supreme Court, because Justice Gorsuch hosted, and he and our other co-chair, Justice Breyer, convened for a debate about textualism and originalism versus pragmatism. And Justice Breyer is writing a book about pragmatism. It's, I think it's called Against Textualism. And of course, Justice Gorsuch is a great textualist. And I began moderating the debate by saying to Justice Gorsuch, why are you a textualist and originalist? And for the next hour, they just talked at each other, and I didn't have to say a word. And I ended the debate by saying thank you for the easiest debate I've ever moderated, because they were just going at it. And they were so full of, of course, I won't begin to rehearse all of the arguments, but deeply informed by history, but also by very different approaches to the Constitution, they were engaging in the most vivid and memorable way possible. So I, I, I think that 
difference in perspectives also reminds me it's not a question of who knows more because everyone knows plenty but how you approach the constitution and how you balance text history structure precedent all these great methodologies that are at the center of our current debates i will share that justice breyer had a really interesting insight on one of our zoom classes i said to him justice breyer many of the students in the zoom chat are asking you whether it's all politics on the court because it's a five to four or six to three court. And he said, it's not all politics. Judges never vote their partisan preferences, but it is political philosophy. A judge who believes in limited government or laissez-faire will rule differently than a judge who believes in big government or socialism or whatever. And that insight is so subtle, but so true that you're not in your partisan politics, but your political philosophy will determine how you vote as a judge. And that helped me also to understand the complicated relation between law and politics in a more true way than I had before. Yeah, that's a brilliant, brilliant insight. I, when you said that, I thought, oh, that explains everything. Yeah, it uh, does, it, doesn't it? It reconciles yeah. what we see and hear and, and how we react. Yeah. Well, let me, let me switch to, I've, I've got couple more topics. We're near the end of our time, but AI is the hot topic of 2023. And I was wondering what constitutional issues you foresee arising from this new and transformative technology. So we just did a great podcast on AI libel and the question of whether or not the machine can commit defamation or libel when it just makes stuff up as these chatbots do. They engage in hallucination, totally make stuff up. Can you, can they libel stuff? And the courts are coming to different conclusions about who you sue. Do you sue the uh, company that created the program or is there no liability because there's no intent and so forth? There are really important issues involving copyright. You saw that a bunch of great novelists have just sued ChatGPT or whatever for having put all their novels to train the machines. And the question of who owns what will become really important. I am very interested in the degree to which AI poses a challenge, an existential challenge to the whole idea of a rule of law based on reason. The whole constitution rule of law and the whole enlightenment project is based on the idea of using reason to master unreasonable passions and emotions and to be guided in a republic based on reason. Machines have no reason. They can impersonate information, but they're not able to make moral judgments or to be guided by reason. And what what the legal implications of that are, I, I, I'm just beginning to imagine we all are, but very much looking forward to exploring that. Well, we will we will definitely be looking to you and NCC for guidance, for education, and for clarity on all these issues, I'm sure. Well, let me ask another two personal questions as we end. If you could go back in time and attend the Constitution Convention, who would you want to be and why? Well, if I could attend, I guess I wouldn't have to be anyone. I could be, I'd be like to be the secretary who is, who is recording and, and hearing the whole thing. But who, who are my favorite founders? I guess if that's the question. I, at, at the convention, I suppose it does have to be Madison, who is so thoughtful and moderate in navigating between the excesses of Hamiltonian nationalism and, and Jeffersonian strict 
constructionism and his prescient fear of factions was so clarifying. There, there, there are the underappreciated nationalists, Governor Morris and James Wilson, although both were, I wouldn't want to be either for, for various, because of their personal excesses. The greatest people in the room were Washington and Franklin. And actually now I've worked my way around to the answer. I guess it would have to be Franklin. <laughs> who, would you, who, would you, who wouldn't want to be Franklin? There yeah, we go. That is true. Who wouldn't want to be Franklin? Yeah. Yeah. My, my answer was probably closer to your initial answer, which is I just want to be a fly on the wall. And totally. Absolutely. I don't need to be participant, but but true to your form, you're you're in there. You're wanting to. I, I can I can I can see you as a Madison trying to bring the opposite sides together and have a, a discussion and a forum for discussion. So that's that seems a very 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 true to your outstanding career. So final career, you you final question. Do you? I know you've had an incredible career so far. I'm sure there's more to come. What do you want your legacy to be? Oh, it's the educational legacy of the NCC. As, as I said, the greatest thing I've ever been involved with in my life is the the interactive constitution and just bringing together all of that light and learning and insight in one place for people of all ages to learn from is just incredibly exciting. And I have no other ambition than to keep doing this great job for as long as they'll have me and to keep trying to bring people together to learn about the Constitution. It is the most satisfying thing imaginable, and I feel so lucky to be doing it every day. Well, that is that is a wonderful legacy, and I'm sure that will be your legacy. And if you need someone to write your story, I'll put my name in the hat. Oh. Everyone has one good book in them, they say. If mine was about Jeffrey Rosen, I think it would be a good topic. <laughs> You've been so incredibly uh, generous in your wonderful questions, and I so appreciate the conversation. I do... I, you know, legacy and, and books, though, I do have to say how excited I am about my new book, which is coming out in February. It's the most meaningful book I've ever written. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. And just really quickly, I was moved to read during COVID the books of classical moral philosophy on Thomas Jefferson's reading list that inspired his understanding of the pursuit of happiness. And I learned that for Jefferson and the other founders, happiness was not feeling good, but being good, not, not the pursuit of pleasure, but the pursuit of virtue. And after reading these amazing works by Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus and the Enlightenment folks, I set out to follow how the founders applied this philosophy in their own lives. And it changed my life. And I just, it was, it was so great to write the book and I can't wait to bring it out into the world. Well, your enthusiasm for it is obvious and we can't wait to read it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every inspiring episode.